All right, Alexander, let's talk about Putin's surprise visit to Kherson and the, the LPR, Lugansk. And uh, obviously he was there to, to see what's going on, to talk with, with military leaders and the commanders on the ground. What else do you think he was uh, doing in Kherson and the LPR? Yeah, what indeed. Well, the first thing he was doing, obviously, was he was making it, he was you know, checking to see that everybody was, uh, you know, up to date, up to speed, up, ready for this counteroffensive and, this, you know, this Ukrainian counteroffensive. Notice that the places that he visited in Kherson region and in Lugansk are the two areas where um, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is most expected. So he wanted to meet the local commanders. Um, he wanted to get a sense of their plans. He probably wanted to hear about whatever concerns they have. He also wanted, I suspect, in fact, ahead of what is a big battle coming, to uh, show to the troops, you know, that the commander-in-chief, who is, of course, himself, that they're all there, that he's there, that he's engaged, that he knows what's going on. But he will have talked about other things. And I'm going to say what I think this is all about, partly as well. Obviously, it's about dealing with the Ukrainian counterattack. But the Russians are certain to have plans going beyond that particular counterattack. And it was very interesting that whilst he was there, he was apparently received a... Well, he didn't receive, he'd already read it, actually. But he was comedy. He met with the commander of Russia's airborne forces, that's his paratroop forces. And this person, who's been very heavily involved in the war, he was in overall charge, for example, of the defence of Kherson City back in the autumn. Um, anyway, this man has prepared an enormous report, which has apparently been very well received in Moscow by the military leadership. And there's been rumours for some time that after the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the Russians are planning an offensive of their own. And I suspect that's partly what he went to discuss, to meet the commanders, to find out whether or not this plan is really workable and what they think about it. So it's both defence and attack, but I think that it was the two together. Hmm. Uh, what do you make of the Russians using these uh, FAB 500 bombs? Oh, yes, Bak- in the- I think in Kupiansk and Bakhmut, I think, are the two areas yeah, where they've used them? Or- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. They're using them increasingly. They also use them, apparently, quite a lot uh, near Sumy, uh, which is in the north earlier. And they're using them increasingly. Now, I think this is, I think this is very interesting and very important. First of all... Um, the Russians used, I'm sure you remember, during the Syrian war, the Russians carried out an awful lot of bombing. I mean, it was basically an air campaign. The Russian side of it was that they provided an awful lot of high-altitude bombing. That time, they didn't have precision-guided bombs. They've only recently appeared in large quantities in the Russian Air Force. Remember, the Russian military, it had a basic stop in terms of arms supplies from about 1991, when the Soviet Union fell, all the way up until about 2010, 2010 or so. So, you know, there's been, you know, they've had to develop and 
catch up on lots of things. They're still developing drones, for example. They're still developing all kinds of things. But anyway, they've now caught up with these bombs. So in Syria, they, they carry out a bombing campaign, which is basically, because um, I remember it's quite interesting, they were attacking not the frontline troops, but the logistic positions just behind the frontline troops, the ammunition depots, the storage depots, all of those things. And eventually what happened in Syria was that the frontline soldiers, the jihadis, the Islamic fighters, eventually on the front lines ran out of ammunition, ran out of supplies, and that was what enabled the Syrian army to achieve its breakthroughs in Aleppo, and then in that uh, massive sweep it carried out over uh, northern Syria in 2017, which basically broke uh, Islamic Islamist resistance in the Syrian war. And I think that the Russians are now coming close to executing the same strategy. They've depleted Ukraine's air defence system. That was clearly what those missile strikes on the energy system were to a great extent about, you know, Liberty really explained it much at the time, but there was an article in the Financial Times that mentioned it some months ago. We now can see that the Ukrainian air defence system isn't working to anything like the level of efficiency that it did before. Um, IGNA, the Ukraine's own air defence commander, has confirmed this. So now they're able to launch bomb strikes. They've got precision-guided bombs. They're testing them out. They've just used them yesterday in a big way in Bakhmut, um, attacking both fortified positions in Bakhmut itself, but again also the major supply points just below the, the front lines, which are used to feed supplies and troops into Bakhmut itself. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that in the coming weeks and months, these are probably, to some extent, test runs in advance of Ukraine's own offensive. And once the Russians have weathered that particular storm, and when they're going to go on the offensive themselves, that, that's probably what they're going to do. They're going to use these bombs in a much more extensive way. Right. So the Financial Times, they published an article a couple of days ago, and they said that the spring offensive is scheduled for mid-May, but it's very high risk. Yesterday, Newsweek published uh, an, ar an article looking at the document leaks, and they said that the spring offensive is scheduled for April 30th. I mean, they put an exact day, day on it. Uh, Kirill Budanov, who's like the, the military intel chief, he said that the, uh, the offensive is going to be amazing and fast and will deliver the results. Uh, he said that, that uh, by springtime, the Ukraine military will be in uh, Crimea by the end of spring. Yeah, that's what he said. And uh, he also said that they will not be retreating for, from Bakhmut. And there are rumors saying that Alensky has been advised by Sirsky, I believe, to... Uh, to fight in Bakhmut, to remain in Bakhmut, and to not retreat until the spring offensive gets underway. 
What do you make of all of these well, I know. Well, different I mean, threads of news? I mean, well, I mean, different threads of news. I mean, let's. I, mean, I think we can discount the April thirtieth story from Newsweek, which, as I said, it's 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 a fairly old figure. Um, there's been talk about Ukraine having um, postponed its offensive. I, I don't think we should let ourselves be pinned down to any particular figure. Um, I do think that the Ukrainians are going to go ahead with this offensive. Um, the Financial Times article that you were based talking about was based on advice given to the Financial Times by British military officers, people who have engineering backgrounds. One of them, I noticed, was from the Royal um, Engineers. So he's, you know, he's somebody who knows all about fortifications. He thought it was very high risk and very, very difficult to launch an attack on these fortified lines. Now, Budanov is telling us all of this. He's talking about, you know, the high prospects of this offensive, about Ukraine, you know, breaking through into Crimea. <laughs> you know, anything I suppose is possible, but I can only assume that such a thing can happen if the Russian army itself breaks. I mean, if the Russian army you know, loses its ability to fight, if the men panic, if the officers make mistakes, if something like that happens, then I suppose something like what Budanov is talking about could happen. But to be frank, nobody else seems to agree with him. I mean, these are Budanov's words. Nobody else seems to agree with him. I, you know, I wonder whether to some extent he's saying these things in order to give encouragement at a time when there is so much commentary out there about um, the prospects of this offensive um, being not particularly good or, in the Financial Times words, very high risk. I mean, you just said it, though. Isn't that the goal of this offensive is to create a panic? Yeah. I mean, it may not be so much about a Ukraine victory. You know, it's not so much about defeating the Russian army, but isn't the goal to create a panic, a narrative of defeat in the hopes that something will happen, the, the Russian troops will become demoralized, there'll be some sort of, uh, of situation in the Kremlin. Uh, a foreign policy magazine put a magazine or publication, on, I'm not even sure what, what it is, foreign policy online, a big neocon uh, site. They put out an article with the title, The West is Preparing for Russia's Disintegration. A mid-war in Ukraine, some strategists are setting their eyes on the decolonization of Russia itself. And the article just talks about how the, uh, in preparation for the spring offensive, which I have to be, be honest with you, all the neocon magazines I've read, Alexander, kind of see the, the spring offensive as being successful. They see it as a type of given. I mean, they... Yeah. They're assuming that the spring offensive will will be successful and will reach Crimea. This is pretty much all the neocon publications across the board. So they, they're, they're talking about how when this spring offensive is launched and it is successful, the West has to prepare for the, for the disintegration of the Putin government and the eventual uh, disintegration of, uh, of Russia. It seems like that's more of a goal is to create this panic so that you can yes. get this, this disintegration than to actually deliver a victory on the battlefield, which yes. I, I think most people don't believe is going to really happen. But yes. you can present the narrative yes. that this is happening and maybe yes. it'll lead to 
to this disintegration. I completely agree. That's exactly what they're thinking about. I mean, that's been the policy all along. They tried that with Herson and Kharkov. The assumption, if you remember, was that you know this would create a crisis in the Kremlin, and it didn't. And I think they're hoping that the same thing will happen this time round with this offensive. That you know, if they gain some ground, even if it's only thirty kilometers, or if they manage to battle through to Crimea, somehow that will lead to a massive panic in Moscow and. Everything there will crumble. I'm going to say something, by the way, and this is an interesting fact about the Pentagon Papers, because the Pentagon Papers, you know, the ones that we've been seeing, the leaks, um, they, they have a sort of divided side to them. On the one hand, they are aware of the great problems that Ukraine is suffering from. You can see that there's growing scepticism, that they're going to be able to integrate these weapon systems, use them effectively, carry forward their um, operations very successfully. So there's that side. But there is the other side, which is that, and this is something that people have commented upon already, which is the extreme extent to which the Pentagon, and not just the Pentagon, but the US, and not just the US government, but you know all of the think tanks, all the people who are involved, are taking their information from Ukraine from people like Budanov. This, they have an idea, a perception of Russian fragility that seems to derive very heavily from Ukrainian sources. I mean, I read an absolutely weird one, actually, recently. This is, I didn't read the document itself, but I read a BBC account of it, which said that there'd been, right at the start of the, of the war, there'd been a sort of, conflict between Putin on the one hand and the chief of the general staff, Gerasimov, backed by Petrushev, and that there'd been this enormous power struggle <laughs> between the two. And that, you know, that when we get the sense reading these things, and by the way, that, saw, that story was definitely sourced from Ukraine. We got, but, but, you know, it was taken seriously that, you know, th this kind of thing coming from Ukraine it is feeding through and is giving people, as I said, in the West, this idea that Russia is much more fragile than it actually is. Well, where are they getting that from? Because one would think that Ukrainians would have a very good understanding of what's happening in Russia. I mean, a very in-depth understanding on the situation in Russia, more than... Uh, you know, the, these neocon and these neocon think tanks and, and these NGOs. So, so why are they, why are they yeah. coming up with this conclusion? Because uh, let me read you a line here from this foreign policy uh, publication. It says, once the elites in the non-Slavic republics sense Moscow is neither rich enough to fill their pockets nor militarily strong enough to crush their dissent, they will rise. And they're saying that with the sanctions coupled with this humiliating uh, spring offensive defeat will awaken the, the, the people in many republics, republics that are non-Slavic. They focus in on that in this article. And there will be just this general momentum sweeping across the Russian Federation of, of these republics deciding to, to, uh, to exit from, from the Russian Federation. And that'll be the end. I mean, where... I'm just trying to figure out where, where yeah. are they getting all this stuff from? Yeah. I mean, can I just say before we 
press on with that, that, I mean, 80% of the population of Russia is, are ethnic Russians. So, I mean, you know, that, that we're not talking about, you know, presumably, I mean, they will want to remain in Russia. But, I mean, well, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not going to go there. I mean, where are they getting this from? Well, I think a lot of it is wishful thinking. A lot of it is applying what happened in the Soviet Union, the case of the Soviet Union, this hope, belief that just as the Soviet Union broke up, the Russian Federation will break up in the same kind of way, even though, as I said, the demographic balance is completely different. I mean, the Soviet Union, the Russians were a bare majority in the Russian Federation. They're a very big majority. But anyway, let's not go too far into all of that. Why are the Ukrainians, who you would have thought particularly informed about Russia, so ignorant of it? Well, I think there's two reasons. Firstly, there's an ideological one. I think that in Ukraine today, in Kiev, you know, the ideology, the political beliefs that have been developing ever since independence, and especially since 2014, uh, a very heady and you know mixed brew of hypernationalism, contempt for Russia, that kind of thing. They're going to make it very difficult for Ukrainians to assess what's going on in Russia very well. And to the extent that Ukrainian authorities are able to communicate with Russians within Russia, I suspect that they're talking mainly to people who are very much on the liberal end of Russian politics. So they may not be getting much information that's reliable anyway, and their ideological beliefs probably make it difficult for them to assess this information properly either. That is one thing. But remember something else. There is also the factor of self-interest. I mean, Ukraine can't come along and tell the Western powers, look, we're being beaten. The Russians are killing us at the rate, the, the, the kill ratio is seven to one against us and in Russia's favour. We're losing the war. And Russia will uh, uh, withstand this offensive. If we launch this offensive, the offensive won't achieve much. And even if it does, Russia is unlikely to break. So, uh, you know, the, if, if the Ukrainians start talking in that way to the West, then people in the West will probably say, well, this is a hopeless cause. So Ukraine inevitably is going to talk things up in the way of, you know, a, a, an imminent collapse of Russia. You know, all you need to do is kick on the door and the whole rotten structure will come tumbling down. By the way, that was said by uh, a German leader uh, the last time, just before Germany attacked Russia. Yeah, well, the money dries up. The money dries up, yeah. I know. And that's the last thing the Oletsky regime wants, is yep. the money to try out. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. You, you know, the, just in closing, the interesting part about everything we're talking about with the intelligence coming from Ukraine that the U.S. is, is using and they're basing much of their policy on, they, they did the same thing with the conflict between Ukraine and uh, Donbass in 2015. Yeah, I remember the, the, it. The West, the West was getting all of their information, including yes. the media, from from the Poroshenko government. Yeah. And that's what they were yeah. basing everything on. And then one day, one day, you know, out of the blue, it seemed, Ukraine was, was ready to, to negotiate because it was, it was over. They had lost. Yes, that's exactly what's happening. You would have and thought you had that they, yeah. Yes, 
And you would have thought that after that, they would all have gone away and said, well, maybe, you know, relying purely on Ukrainian sources isn't particularly wise. Can, can I just say something? I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading a long piece. I think it was by Simplicius, and he was talking about this enormous intelligence apparatus that the US allegedly has and how they're able to spot and track everything that happens. You know, if a blade of grass falls anywhere in Donbass, they know about it and all this. This is not the impression you get from the Pentagon Papers. The impression you get from the Pentagon Papers is of a US that is actually um, very ill-informed about much of what is going on in Ukraine. They don't understand much about what Ukraine itself is doing. They don't understand very much about what Russia is doing. Um, they have very, very vague ideas, as they admit themselves, about the levels of casualties of each side. They give very low confidence to whatever figures they are uh, publishing. So you would have thought that by now it would have been understood that reliance upon Ukraine is risky, and you would have thought also that intelligence that's in the past been obtained about Russia, well, hasn't turned out exactly in the way that people expected. After all, we've already said that, you know, the assumption that the sanctions would cause the whole of Russia to collapse economically weren't fulfilled. And yet, they carry on. <laughs> they, don't, they don't seem able to learn from this lesson. I'm going to say something. I'm going to make a guess that any attempt, you know, given how uh, strident neocons are, there's been a publication today in Britain of a public letter circulated by a group of people with, um, you know, foreign policy experience, foreign policy veterans. It's, the language, again, is very strident, very neocon in turn. Uh, how aggressive they are. I suspect that anybody who comes along and says, well, look, you know, is this wise, taking all this intelligence from Ukraine or taking all this intelligence from, you know, anti-Putin Russian liberals? We'll, we'll simply get shouted down. And I think people are scared. I don't think that it's easy to argue about these things in Washington and London. And that's why we are where we are. Yeah, it has a lot of parallels with you know, the whole cancel culture mentality right now in, in the United States and in the West. People are scared to, to say what's really going on because mm. they're going to get shouted down or they won't even, they won't get promoted. Oh, promoted. Get promoted or moved up. Yeah, and, and then I also think there's, there's, there's another part of, uh, of these DC policymakers and these London policymakers that it's too, it's too painful for them to admit that Russia is indeed competent, or that the Russian yes. people are competent. I think that's very painful of them to, to to come to that realization and say, you know what, you know, the, the Russian government is doing a good job. Um, the, the finance ministry is doing a good good job. Lavrov is doing a good job, and the military is fighting um, the war in the way you would expect the military to be fighting. I think that's just way too painful for them to to admit. I think that's absolutely correct. Yes. Yeah. All right, we'll uh, leave it there at thedoran.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, and Telegram. And go to the Duran shop, 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.